So let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa So tonight's Dhamma talk is about freedom. Freedom is something very precious. It's hard to come by and it can be easily lost again. Living in a free and democratic country like Australia, you may take your freedom for granted. Freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of education, freedom of movement, of travel, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, or freedom of thought. The history of mankind can be described as the people's struggle to become free, to become free from oppressing rulers, to become free from slavery or to become free from racial discrimination or to become free from censorship or to become free from domestic violence or to become free from unfair, unjust laws. So some of these struggles for freedom or independence have been successful. People enjoy greater levels of freedom nowadays, at least in democratic countries or constitutional monarchies. Freedom of speech or freedom of the press are available to many people, but although not to everybody, on this planet. There has been progress in regard to the personal freedom that people enjoy nowadays. And still, many people are not free. And even those who consider themselves to be free, to be free human beings, they are still chained by invisible chains. And so even in our present age, the calls for freedom can be heard from almost every corner of the world. So here are just uh, two examples. There is the call for freedom by the Tibetan people. And this has been an ongoing issue 
for many years, for many decades already. In the late or in the 1950s, um, China has been invading Tibet and this has resulted in a genocide of the Tibetan people and into a massive uh, destruction of their culture, of many of the monasteries were completely destroyed. And still nowadays, China does not really loosen the grip on this once independent country. Or there is the struggle for gender equality carried out by feminists all around the world. For example, although Switzerland is considered to be a progressive and democratic country, but it was only in 1971 that women were given the right to vote. In comparison, in New Zealand, the women got the right to vote as early as 1893. And I looked it up, apparently in Australia, it was in 1902 that the women got the right to vote. Or in Germany, it was in 1918. And in Turkey, the women got the right to vote in 1934. So Switzerland is not that progressive <laughs> in this regard. So the calls for freedom or for more freedom, they seem never to be ending. And the people's wish for freedom was as strong at the time of the Buddha as it is nowadays. And in response to this deep-seated wish to be free, the Buddha um, offered the Dhamma. He offered the Dhamma as a means to achieve complete freedom. Because the Dhamma is timeless, this teaching is applicable nowadays as it was at the time of the Buddha, like 25, 26 centuries ago. Although the Buddha was living and teaching at the time when the political and social landscape looked quite different, but what he was teaching, the Dhamma, that is aiming at the transformation of the heart, of the mind aiming to liberate the heart and the mind from the invisible chains. So his teaching is still um, applicable nowadays because the nature of the human heart and mind has not changed. That's the same as it was at the time of the Buddha. And the Buddha himself described the Dhamma as follows. He said, 
just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, even so this Dhamma and discipline has but one taste, the taste of liberation. And so with these words, the Buddha assured us the liberating quality of his teaching. The practice of the Dhamma leads to liberation. It leads to freedom. This we are told time and again. So whoever is practicing the Dhamma can taste this liberating quality. And this is not only said by the Buddha, but also by the many teachers throughout the centuries up to the present day. So whether you just drink a thimbleful of water, ocean water, or you, t or you drink a cup of it, or if you drink a bucket full of ocean water, the taste <coughs> is the same. It tastes salty. And likewise with the Buddha's teaching, a single taste, the taste of freedom, the taste of liberation, pervades his entire teaching. And this can be experienced at the basic level, when one is engaging in the practices of generosity, or by keeping the precepts, or by acts of devotion. This liberating quality can also be experienced at the intermediate level. For example, when one is engaging in the practice of meditation. And it can be experienced at the top level with the realization of path knowledge. So in every case, the taste is the same. The taste of liberation, the taste of freedom. Now, the Buddha was well aware that other ascetics, other teachers at his time, that they were also teaching ways to liberation. And he didn't deny this. But the Buddha simply pointed out that their kind of freedom was not the all-encompassing liberation that he, the Buddha, was teaching and that he had actually attained. Again, in the Buddha's words, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who preach liberation. They praise liberation in various ways. But in regard to the highest Aryan liberation, I do not see any who have surpassed me in this. And so with these words, the Buddha was not bragging, he was not showing off, he was simply stating a fact. So a teaching which comes with the promise of complete and all-encompassing freedom is of course, 
very attractive. That's what people want. They want to be free. They want to uh, be liberated. And so it's an attractive teaching because it says that everybody can attain this state of this state of complete liberation. However, when people come to the Dhamma, they very soon hear that the way to freedom or the way to liberation actually involves some discipline, it involves sense restraint and self-control. And so when people hear that such qualities on the way to liberation are needed, so hearing this, this often dampens their initial enthusiasm and interest in this practice because this is not what they were looking for. So to many, this seems not only to be a contradiction, but it can also become a major stumbling block. People ask themselves, how can freedom or liberation be achieved by restricting one's action of body, speech and mind? Or saying, this self-control is just another prison that prevents me from being free or asking themselves, how is it possible to become free by putting more restrictions on my life? The confusion lies in the fact that there are two kinds of freedom. One is the freedom of license and the other one is freedom as a spiritual autonomy or freedom as mastery over one's inner condition. And of course, most people identify freedom with license. For them, freedom means the license to freely, to freely act out their impulses desire, cravings, whims, and moods. And they believe to be free, they must be free to do whatever they want to do. That they must free to speak whatever they want to say. And they must, that they must be free to think whatever they want to think. And so, Every restriction laid upon this license is seen as an encroachment upon their freedom. But the freedom that the Buddha is referring to, as you can guess, is not this freedom as license. The Buddha pointed to a spiritual freedom. And this Spiritual freedom is an internal autonomy of the mind that results in the destruction of the defilements. Or this spiritual freedom 
is the liberation of the compulsive and habitual patterns of the mind. And the final culmination of this kind of freedom is the deliverance of samsara, this endless cycle of birth and death. So this spiritual freedom has been manifested, has been exemplified by people throughout the ages. So these women and men have shown that the mind free from the tormenting and oppressive defilements experience, experiences a greater degree of freedom greater degree of freedom that is unequaled. And even if these people, these liberated people are imprisoned, they are still experiencing a greater degree of freedom than the so-called free citizens who are actually imprisoned by their mental patterns conditioned habitual mental patterns. For example, after the brutal crushdown of the demonstrations in Yangon in Burma in 1988, many of the members of the NLD were put in prison or under house arrest the National League for Democracy. And one of them was Hu Chi Maun. So he was put under house arrest. Although his outer freedom was curtailed, his mind was still free. He was very careful not to let his mind be imprisoned by the actions of the government taken against him. He compared the military in general and the soldiers in front of his house in specific as hunters. In an interview with Alan Clements, Uchi Mao said, imagine the consciousness of a hunter who is all the time anxiously peeping around and suspiciously listens to every sound. His mind is set to conquer and kill. This is a truly deploring and regrettable state of mind. For this reason, all the soldiers in front of my house remind me constantly to eat my meal slowly and peacefully. I am not in a hurry. I enjoy my freedom not tomorrow, but today. Another person of the NLD was in prison for many years. And he was also very careful not to let his mind be overcome by habitual patterns. So he tried to see the wardens and the officers in the prison not as his enemies, 
as one probably uh, would do, but he tried to see them as his friends. He tried to prevent that his mind was overcome with, read, with feelings of enmity against people who simply had to perform their duty. Talking to Alan Clemens, Putin Wu said, During that time, the time in prison, I made it a habit to practice generosity. I offered them some of the food that my wife brought me here into the prison. With this act of generosity, I wanted to prevent any notion of seeing them as my enemies. So I usually share some of my food with them. They too had a hard life in prison, even though they were only working there. So I will continue with this talk and I will read the quote again so that we have the full one. So Utin U said to Alan Clements, during that time in prison, I made it a habit to practice generosity. I offered them some of the food that my wife brought me here into prison. With this act of generosity, I wanted to prevent any notion of seeing them as my enemies. So I usually shared some of my food with them. They too had a hard life in prison, even though they were only working there and not being imprisoned. And we have heard similar accounts of Tibetan people, lay people, nuns and monks, who had been in Chinese prisons working prisons for many years or decades and although they lacked the outer or personal freedom their minds were still free sometimes even under the most trying conditions the most severe tortures could not break their minds and their hearts would never be put in chains. Whenever I hear such accounts, I have a tremendous respect for these people. What they were able to do, or still are able to do, is by no means a piece of cake. It shows a deep understanding of the Dhamma and a great degree of sense restraint and self-control. And the result of this is a degree of inner freedom that is hard to come by with. To put in simple terms, there are two crucial areas we must pay attention to because they usually obstruct the attainment of freedom. 
the Buddha pointed out three kinds of feeling as Vedana, as you know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And as you also know, each experience in the body and in the mind is accompanied by one of these three Vedanas or feeling tones. It's impossible to experience an object without an accompanying Vedana. And then the Buddha also singled out three mental factors that are the subjective counterparts of these three kinds of Vedana. And he called them Anusayas. You know them, the latent defilements, these latent tendencies. And these latent tendencies are lying dormant in the continuum of the mind. And they are always in a state of being ready to manifest either in the mind as thoughts, emotions, or even as uh, physical or verbal actions. So from this state of being inactive, they come into an active uh, state. And so these three mental factors which are the subjective counterpart to these three kinds of Vedana, they are basically greed, hatred, and delusion. And now the Buddha said that when a worldling, and the worldling is a person who has not yet attained one of the stages of enlightenment, a person who has not yet experienced any of the past knowledges. So the Buddha said, when a worldling experiences a pleasant feeling, then the latent tendency of desire comes up. That means, in other words, this desire to possess the object or the desire to, um, to enjoy the pleasantness of this object or uh, experience. And the Buddha further said that when a worldling experiences an unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant feeling, then the latent tendency to aversion arises. So any form of aversion towards this unpleasant uh, experience, resentment, ill will, enmity, frustration, and so on. And then the Buddha said, when the worldling experiences a neutral Vedana, a neutral feeling, then the latent tendency of delusion or ignorance comes up. And so this delusion is like a dark shadow that makes clear seeing 
impossible. And because it's there like a shadow, it distorts or it perverts what one perceives. And the Buddha then also said that these latent tendencies, the main ones being desire, aversion, ignorance, so that these latent tendencies remain in the stream of consciousness forever if nothing is done to curb them down or to eliminate them. As I said earlier, Vedana, the feeling tone, is present with each moment of experience. And so the latent tendency or the corresponding latent tendency will uh, arise as long as it is not yet uprooted. So it is not really enough to simply be aware of the Vedana, the feeling tone, and the immediate response that comes up, be it the response of either any form of desire or aversion or ignorance. Of course, just to be aware of that is still better than to be completely unmindful of these states and reactions. So this is actually the first step. To notice the Vedana, the feeling tone, and the immediate reaction of desire or aversion or ignorance. And then yeah, to know it, to be mindful of it. But if you really want to achieve complete freedom, then we must completely uproot these latent tendencies. So if you want to become free from these oppressing and tormenting states of mind, we must eliminate them from the stream of our uh, consciousness, because only this is the true freedom of the heart and mind. So from our personal experience, and especially seeing that more clearly in the course of uh, the meditation practice, we know how strongly embedded these latent tendencies are in our heart and mind. So we see that they are the conditioned and habitual responses to sense impressions. An area where it becomes quite obvious, be that during a retreat or be it uh, at home during our day-to-day -day life, is food, regarding food. So there, if there are any pleasant Vedanas arising in regard to food, by only looking at 
certain dish or smelling it or then tasting it. So if it's pleasant, this experience, then immediately there is greed, wanting more, wanting it again. If an unpleasant Vedana arises, then mm, not, not interested, repulsion, aversion, the mind turning away from it. And this conditioning, these habitual patterns have been going on for a long, long time already. And so each time when we fall into this conditioned reaction again, with that we reinforce and we strengthen this conditioning or these habitual patterns. And this in turn makes it even more difficult to overcome these habitual patterns. So even if a person has all the outer freedom that one can imagine, a person being a millionaire, so that person is still not free because she or he is still at the mercy of her or his own conditioned mind. Yes, in terms of license, this person is completely free. But in terms of spiritual freedom, this person remains a victim of bondage. This person remains a slave to the workings of her or his defiled mind. So this process of meditation, of vipassana meditation, can also be seen as a process of deconditioning. It's a deconditioning of the habitual patterns that govern our minds. And recent scientific research has shown that even on the physical level of the brain, it is actually possible to change the neuronal reactions of the brain with mind training, that is, with meditation practice. And so in the light of this, spiritual freedom means the freedom from greed, aversion and ignorance. And this freedom can be gained through disciplined and persevering practice. Unfortunately, this freedom does not fall from the sky as a gift of grace. In regard to effort or persevering practice, the Dalai Lama has said, and he was saying this a long time already, that was in 1989, he said, within a short time span, 
it is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our mind. It needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now, at 55, some 39 years have gone by, several decades have passed, yet the result is still not satisfactory. We have to work hard, and that's the reality. I consider myself very fortunate to have met some liberated uh, persons, persons like the Dalai Lama or some monks and nuns in Burma. And each of these encounters was a very deep and profound experience. Of course, none of these people had claimed full enlightenment. And I'm in no way able to confirm whether this public opinion is true or not. But from my own personal experience, I can say that there was really something very special, something really extraordinary in these people. What struck me most in these outstanding beings was the sense of calm, of peace, of serenity that emanated from them. And it almost felt tangible. It was like being in the midst of a huge lake whose waters were completely still, having no ripples going over the water. And in their presence, it felt like there were no restrictions, no limitations, or no boundaries. From other people who had met the Dalai Lama personally, I heard for them it was kind of a wow experience. And that it was really unusual and almost blew them away. For me, however, it was not this kind of wow experience, but it was an experience that was rather subtle, gentle, and prof uh, extremely profound. I remember so clearly that moment when I stood very close, uh, just in front of the Dalai Lama, about 25 years ago, just uh, standing one foot apart uh, from him. And so, coming into his immediate presence, I was engulfed into this space of calm, of peace, of serenity, and then this thought popped up in the mind. And it was like, 
this is normal. This is what the normal human being is like. We, all the unenlightened beings, are not normal. We are actually insane with minds not functioning normally. And then an, another person whom I met and in whose presence I felt this space of calm, of stillness, of peace, was Shwe Umyin Sayadaw, a Burmese Sayadaw who passed away in 2002. About two months before he passed away, Mimi, my Burmese friend and I, we went to pay respect to him. And as we entered his big room, he was talking to a Burmese family who had offered him a set of robes. And shortly after I had entered the room, I started to feel a very strong and almost palpable presence in the room. And again, I felt so calm, peaceful, and it was so still. So we sat down, as one does it, and after finishing the conversation with this Burmese family, he gave a short Dhamma talk. Mimi and I were still sitting there listening to his Dhamma talk, and his voice was very soft and quite frail, and so I had difficulty understanding every word. But still, I could follow the general outline of his talk. And then he finished the talk with the traditional dedication and sharing of merits. So usually there's a recitation that the people chant and that's also quite normal uh, that we simply joined in into this chanting, Mimi and myself. And so when the recitation reached the passage and maybe quickly attained to Nibbana, then it was like being thrown in this, into this unconditional state for a short moment. And Nibbana was no longer a state that may be achieved in the future or a next life, but it was right there in that moment. So we should never forget that the ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching, the goal of liberation, is actually closer than most of us think. We simply need to make ourselves available, get out of the way. Mutta was a nun who lived at the time of the Buddha and she was one who experienced this ultimate freedom, spiritual freedom. A description of her awakening can be found in the Terigatas, 
the verses of the nuns. And I will finish this talk with her worms. So freed, so thoroughly freed I am from three crooked things set free, from mortar, pestle, and a crooked old husband. Having uprooted the craving that leads to becoming, I am set free from aging and death. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for your patience and attentive listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.